Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soja, Part 3, Korean Drama, Chapter 7, The Match and the Deal. Wearing a new black dogie that was delivered to me wrapped in plastic and perfectly folded, a perfect fit. I was facing my opponent. He was young, Japanese, maybe my age, maybe 18. I was confused and still had not seen the man they called the general. Yet, I was surrounded by young-faced observers, about 20 on each side of me, 80 in total, representing many different races. As the battle began, it was as though none of the observers were there. I couldn't see him. I couldn't hear him. I could only see my opponent. He bowed. His first mistake. I kicked him back upright, had no time for courtesies. It angered him. His second mistake. Anger is a weakness to a warrior. I struck him. He was in awe of my disrespect and audacity. It was his third mistake, unaware of the element of surprise. I struck him with the left, he blocked. I need him with my right, he buckled. Doubt, his fourth mistake. He doubted my ability. I flipped him. Now he was flat on the floor with my foot on his chest. Victory. A new opponent appeared. He looked like a white American. I welcomed this match. Made his face represent all that I had to battle against back in the U.S. A quick learner, he didn't bow. He ran up in a flying kick. I remained calm and ready, caught his foot, and used it to twist his body mid-air. He fell face down, dragged back two steps, and began standing. He wasn't quick enough. I kicked him in his face before he could get up. He hit the floor again, seemed humiliated. I approached. He tried to trip me up in my steps. I kicked his leg at the joint where the knee and calf connect and broke it. They carried him off, reddened. His face was locked in the scream position, but no sound came out. I waited. They took too long. I began running around the inside perimeter of the fighting space. I chose my target, ran past him, and then stopped. He didn't know I chose him. He wasn't my designated opponent. I did a flying kick backward and kicked him in his face. He fell onto the crowd. Surprised, they pushed him off at first. Then they tried to help him up. He stood up. Take me to your general was all I said to him. I had chosen him because he was standing while everyone else was seated. In my mind, that meant that he was higher ranked. At least that was my guess. Now he wanted to fight me back. No problem. I knew they had all observed that my legs and feet were dangerous weapons. I switched my style. Went octopus and became two hands and fists moving so rapidly it felt like I had eight arms. Now I held his head in a hand lock. One swift movement, left, right, backward, or forward. 
and he would be dead. Stop. You haven't killed anyone yet. I'll take you to the general. It was Irene. Let's go. Follow me, she said. As we left, one set of hands began clapping. I cut them a disrespectful look to finalize the most disrespectful matches I had ever fought. Then many others began clapping. It didn't ease my feeling. I had been disrespected. Now I'm disrespectful. Did they think this was a show? Irene drove an uncovered convertible jeep. I rode in the back. We moved swiftly beyond trees. In the clearing, the beautiful Busan sky was revealed. I could hear the water below and the water rushing down the rocks. The general sat beside a desk lined with six hand grenades. They were each within his long-armed reach. He was a man as black as me and about four inches taller. He had an M16 leaning against the wall in the corner behind him. There were several mounted weapons as well. Have a seat, he said to me. Thank you, Irene, he said, dismissing her. Another woman entered immediately after Irene exited. She was carrying bottled water and hot tea. Put it down next to him, the general said. She was a blonde, wearing a tight, short dress and heels. I watched his eyes and could see that this was his taste. It's okay. Have something to drink, he said calmly. No, thank you. What's this all about? I asked him. He reached for one of his grenades but moved beyond it and picked something else up instead. He laid it in his lap. Listen and don't move, he said. He picked up the phone beside him. It was a business phone with a bunch of buttons. He pressed another button. Speaker phone. I could hear the buzzing sound coming through. The volume was up swiftly. I looked over my left shoulder and then my right. There were two speakers mounted in both corners of the wall behind me, projecting the sound of the ringing phone. Someone picked up the call. A male voice answered, Mushi? Mushi? So I knew he was Japanese. Then the general began speaking smooth and comfortable Japanese to the voice on the other end. When the general stopped talking, the voice on the other end said, Chatomate. We both sat, waiting patiently. Ohayu, gozaimosu, daddy, the soft voice said. Then I knew it was Chiasa, and the general was her father. I felt suddenly like a man who had all of the wind kicked out of him. The general gestured for me to remain silent. He picked up the object that he had placed in his lap and stood it up on his desk facing me. 
It was a picture of Chiasa, pretty as a puma, seated joyfully on her park bench. Good morning, baby. What were you doing? Riding, Daddy. You know I went riding first thing at sunrise. Oh, you should have seen me. I was riding so fast. Soon I'll be quicker than you. You're right. You will. Until then, just keep practicing. Did you have something to eat and drink? The general asked her. Come on, Daddy. We already talked about this. I thought you understood. How are you going to race in the heat of Japan's sunlight without falling out? You'll get dehydrated, he warned, with a real sounding concern. No, I won't. This is the 14th day. I'm used to it. Besides, I rode at sunrise. I had eight bottles of water before then and some fruit and fish. I take good care of myself, Chiasa said. Enough of that, the general said, his, ch- his tone changing some. So, when will you go to Korea, he asked. I don't know if I'm going. He didn't ask me, Chiasa said. And what's his name again, honey? I never told you. Don't try to trick me, daddy. You don't need to know him unless he asks me. And then, if he does, he'll face you. He's not afraid of anything, she said. He's like you, she added. (laughs) And laughed a little. gotta go the general said no daddy wait don't hang up so fast what are you doing today where are you Chiasa asked him I'm working hard for you baby he said okay I see you don't want to tell me well if you're anywhere on the continent fly your helicopter over and stop by and see me we'll ride horses together okay she asked him okay he said in a way that made it easy to see he tries to give her mostly everything. I knew then that his daughter was this strong man's only recognizable weakness. I love you, Daddy, Chiasa said, sending a chill through me. I love you too. The general pushed the button and the phone cleared. He looked at me. I understood. I looked straight back at him. I love her, I said. You're married. I'm Muslim. I know, he said. I've been stationed in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Saudi Arabia. I've known men with four wives, eight wives, 12 wives. I've seen their women wearing hijab, niqab, burqas, abayas, you name it. For all the years, I've wondered, how do these men get these women to sit beside one another? Wife number one, beside wife number two, beside wife number three, all seated quietly in one family. I said to myself, these women do it because they've been beaten. They have been forced. They do it at gunpoint. But experience taught me, and you might understand this now, 
to hold a man captive or to hold anybody captive takes a whole lot of money, a whole lot of weapons, an army, and a whole lot of time. I knew it was impossible that whole countries of women were doing these things, living this way by force. So I concluded they do it because they're stupid. They're uneducated and unaware. They're just mothers and housewives, local women. They don't know any better. He leaned back in his chair. I didn't say anything. Yet I was listening carefully. I raised Chiasa to be different. I sent my daughter to all the top schools. She skipped two grades and graduated high school at 15. She's an expertly trained martial artist in five separate disciplines. She speaks English, Japanese, and French. She's an expert at horseback riding and archery and is about to become a pilot. Leaning forward and easing his chair closer to mine, he was now seated directly before me. And now my baby says, Daddy, I love him. He's amazing. If he asks me, I'll agree to be his second wife. She's reading a Quran, fasting for Ramadan. Now, Chiasa is not the type to sit idle in the house for anyone. She'll never stop moving or learning or growing. But she's anxious waiting on you. She said she plans to wait for you for three years and that the two of you will marry in New York when she's 19. Are you beginning to understand my anger and disappointment? He asked, now holding one of the grenades in his hand. But I knew he wouldn't blow us up. He enjoyed his position too much and was a man who wouldn't settle for less. In the United States Army, we have an unofficial policy called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. This policy has nothing to do with you except I want you to not ask my daughter to marry you. To not tell my daughter that you and I have ever met. To not ask any questions about this operation. Do not tell anyone that it ever happened. Do you understand me? He shifted closer to intimidate me. I understand, but he interrupted me. I'm not asking for something for nothing. You survived an orchestrated attack by the United States Army. You outperformed my top recruits here on this base. In the war game, you defeated 10 men last night, two men this morning, and won three matches in our martial arts competition. The actual hits, the accuracy of your shooting, your marksmanship is not what impressed me the most, although it was an incredible achievement for a civilian. It was your mental endurance that made you 
a champion. He leaned back again. Let me tell you what makes the average soldier fail. It's mental weakness. He gets captured. He panics. His terror traps him. He can only think of what has happened before he was captured and what will happen to him ultimately. He can't think his way through his present captivity. He can't develop a plan rapidly enough and execute it. He can't fight to win. He's paralyzed. His fear of losing and his fear of death defeat him. In what he believes are his final moments, he thinks only of his loved ones. Dwelling on the emotions of love sinks him. The general smiled, seeming satisfied with his analysis and watching to see if his words were moving me. He leaned forward again with a fixed stare. The naked thing was brilliant. He smiled as though he was being forced to give me the credit and then laughed and then he clapped. You didn't get stuck on stupid morals, he said, each word slowly with extra emphasis. You focused instead on survival. You made quick analysis and quick plans. You took risks, but not too many. You calculated your risks. You knew you couldn't drive that truck. Smartly, you left it alone. You took the keys, though. Clever. Some recruits slashed the tires and cost the army a fortune. I like you. He stood up. You are any general's dream soldier. Do you know how many recruits never make it to the cabin during that war exercise? Over the years, the star recruit that makes it to the cabin, the one or the two who pull it off, still fail once they get inside. He turned toward me. You didn't fuck Irene. You didn't even try. You didn't eat her soup. You tied her up and fed her the sedative instead, he said with pride. I know some Muslim men who are real pricks. They could do anything except not fuck the blonde. He laughed, and then his laughter evaporated. You are young enough that with the right training, you could be one mean-ass weapon. You would have a lifetime career in the military. How about it? Don't ask, don't tell, I repeated slowly and thoughtfully. I can do that. I won't ask you how you know who I am how you found me, or why you think it was okay to abduct me and drop me into your war game exercise. You have my word. I won't ask you or anybody else, I said solemnly. Don't tell, I repeated. Don't tell your daughter that I love her. I won't. She already knows. Don't ask her to marry me. There's only one way that could happen. That is... If I don't ever see her again, I can stay away from her, although I don't want to. But I doubt you can keep her away from me, I said. The general's face swelled with insult. Then he absorbed it and wore restraint instead. No disrespect, sir. 
but a woman who is loved by a true Muslim man will love, cover, sit, wait, work beside wife number two or three or four because of the quality of the love that she is receiving because of our passion, our loyalty, our submission to one God and the boundaries that we are required to respect any woman being loved and protected and provided for by a true Muslim man who may have more than one wife gets more than she can get from a non-believer that she has all to herself. That's the big secret, the answer to the question that's been rocking you for all these years. I stood up also. So, since we are striking deals, let's agree. Let me walk out of here and back into my life. I won't say a word about this abduction to anyone. I won't ask any questions about it. I won't contact Chiasa or ask her to be my wife and you guarantee me that I won't see Chiasa Hayoku Brown ever again and I'll guarantee you if I don't see her she's yours if I do see her she's mine we shook on it <laughs>